0: Good day to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we are near um, wrapping up the first uh, weekend in December, and even though it's just December 5th, it does seem like the month is already uh, starting to fly by quick. I'm not wishing um, Christmas just yet, but of course I do know that in 20 days from now it'll be Christmas Day, but at the same time I just want to enjoy what's left before uh, Christmas Day does come around. It's good to be on the air uh, once again, and uh, when I was on the air last with you all, we uh, discussed about um, what led up to that um, infamous night of March 5th, 1770, a.k.a. the Boston Massacre. I'm sure many of you all who have already uh, listened to that uh, podcast episode learned more about the Boston Massacre than you had been previously taught from a school textbook or um, learning about it through say a documentary on television um on the one hand i think that's the irony with history is that just when we you know think we've learned everything there is to know about a particular subject we end up learning more about it as time goes along and as i had also mentioned from the previous podcast uh it first off it's a, a tragedy that that shooting uh, took place in michigan school shooting and sadly, it seems like that has become quite the norm for for just over the last 20 years, it seems. Uh, it doesn't make it right that that has become a norm, but sadly it has. And yes, four people might have died, but the sad part is it was four students who died. But to me, if we look back on the times, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, how when five people were shot... On the night of March 5, 1770, that was just unheard of. You know, it was one thing for five people to die in one night because of um, a disease or an illness, but for five people to die by means of violence in one setting, that was breaking news for its day. That was a an event that did forever change people's lives. And in today's unstable world, shootings, no matter how many victims there are, it sadly has become a norm. It doesn't make a difference where it happens in the world. It has sadly become a global norm. And I certainly hope for all of you who have been uh, listening to my uh, podcasts that, that you all would never have to witness anything like a uh, shooting, regardless of setting. I hope I never witness one, too. But at the same time, we can't take anything for granted. We can't assume anything no more. Uh, There was a time, probably, even when I remember, uh, 25, 30 years ago, there were certain things that I never thought of that could happen. And now, years later, those things are the norm. So what I could say is I'm very thankful I came through uh, school when I did, but that's not to say that there were challenges or there were issues in the world, they just weren't Like what they are today. But anyways, uh, we should uh, focus uh, on the uh, primary um, focal uh, point of our uh, podcast uh, discussion on American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger. We have a lot of ground to cover, but then again, we always do, and we always come away um, learning something that we didn't know before, so we don't have to worry about that. But what we do have to focus on is now the year 1773, because I know many of you are itching to know about whether or not we are, how soon we are going to get to 1773, and we are going to do that now. So let's get prepared for the 1st uh, leadoff question for this podcast. Going into 1773, what was the overall state of affairs for Britain's East India Company? Okay, remember folks, the East India Company, they're the ones that are trying to um to sell the tea in the colonies, uh most notably like in Massachusetts for example, and they have a huge surplus of tea. But the question is, or not so much the question, the problem is is that they can't sell all this tea. They only have a few select customers like nine um merchants in Boston whom are loyal to the crown, whom are whom are the ones that are um purchasing this tea. But at the same time, the problem is that there is at least 840,000 um, pounds, or um, chests of tea, rather, I should say, that still need to be sold. So it, it's fair to say that Britain's East India Company is stuck between a rock and a hard place. But I can give you the best 101 answer right here in, with regards to their overall state of affairs is that the East India Company was in turmoil, how so? Well, it's pretty easy. Excessive quantities of unsold tea still sitting in British warehouse facilities. And I will mention the exact number or number figure here in a moment. But it's, you know, when we think of um, the overall state of affairs for a company or for a business, and when we find out it's not good, we often think of the company facing deficits instead of surpluses. In this case, the East India Company, they may not have top-of-the-line uh, financial status, but all of that is due to the excessive quantities of unsold tea. And if you can't sell the tea, then it is fair to say that you will probably end up with uh, deficits. Isn't it fair to say that Parliament was in deficit? I mean, in, in, in a large looming deficit after the French and Indian War, yes. So by 1773, roughly 85% of all tea in America was smuggled Dutch tea. Remember from the uh, get-go, the percentage was somewhere around 80%. Well, I had to remind myself that it it eclipsed 80% and that by 1773, roughly 85% of all tea in America was smuggled Dutch tea. So the tea from the East India Company... And we learned that there was the Bohia tea and the Hyson. The people consuming those teas are in the minority. However, the tea is gaining popularity, most notably amongst um, American women, whom are of the um, upper tier um, social and economic status uh, s- sector of uh, the greater society. So, East India, the East India Company owed money to the Bank of England. Okay, so. That explains why right there. If your financial affairs aren't good, aren't good, it's not the ultimate factor, but one of the critical factors here is that this uh, company, being in not-so-good uh, financial shape, they owe money to the Bank of England. Of course, the only way they're going to be able to get any kind of um, money back in what we call in, their, in the surplus side is by selling tea, but obviously they're having trouble the east, east India Company shares have declined drastically but before i get to the share part here in a moment does anybody want to take a guess at exactly how many millions how many how many pounds of tea i might have given something away but let's just pretend as though i didn't how many pounds of tea are sitting in british warehouse facilities does anybody want to take a guess at exactly how many pounds of e, of east india tea are just sitting there Almost rotting away. All right. Choice A is 10 million. Choice B is 20 million pounds. Or choice C, 15 million pounds. The answer is choice C, folks. The East India Company has about 15 million pounds of tea wasting away in British warehouse facilities. That, uh, to me, folks, is, um, is staggering. And if that's bad enough, East India Company shares have declined drastically from 280 to 160 pence on the London Stock Exchange. Of course, when I think of Stock Exchange, I always think of the New York Stock Exchange, but we have to remember even in the 18th century in America, there is no such thing as a Stock Exchange. So, for the London Stock Exchange to be witnessing these shares declining from 280 to 160 pence, that is a big deal. So the East India Company officials went as far as requesting the British government to eliminate the tea duty in North America. Did you hear that, folks? That I was actually blown away by this, that the East India Company officials are now, they could be empathizing with the colonists by saying to British officials, though, hey, look, you know how upset those um colonists are 3,000 miles away across the ocean, they don't like the fact that there is a tax on the tea, and yet you've repealed everything else from those Townshend duties. Just eliminate the tea tax and leave them out of it. Well, Lord Frederick North is not going to go forward with, with what the East India Company officials want with regards to eliminating the tea duty in North America. Lord Frederick North wants to pretty much stick it to the colonists because if the tea duty is eliminated, that is the tax on the tea is eliminated altogether. What does that, how would that bode for Lord Frederick North in Parliament? It would be a victory for the colonists. Lord Frederick North, along with the Crown and Parliament, do not want the colonists telling them how to govern. (laughs) Lord North and Parliament and the Crown are going to see to it that they are the ones running the show and that they are the ones telling the colonists how things are going to be done in terms of governing. So, Lord North viewed a potential repeal as a weakness of Parliament's ability in asserting control over the colonies. So there you have it, folks. An offer was made by, the e- by East India Company officials, a very daring offer to say the least, but no. Lord Frederick North, what he wants is control. What he wants is power. He wants Parliament to have power in asserting control over the colonies, and that means upholding the tax on the tea. Did many members in parliament own East India shares shares or another form of uh, or another term of what we refer to as stock? Yes. This was a contributing factor behind parliament's decision to enact the Tea Act on May 10th of 1773. So if you have shares and knowing that the shares have declined, you're going to do everything you can to um still retain not just power but You'll do whatever it is to support the East India Company, even if it means going against what they had proposed, and that was eliminating the tax on tea. The Tea Act allowed the East India Company to do what? Did the act allow East, did the act itself allow the East India Company to ship tea directly into North America? Yes. But how so? What was the East India Company allowed to acquire? And this is something very powerful, folks. Well, you can acquire power. That's that's one answer, but acquiring power is vague unto itself. Acquiring power is both short and long term. It, it, it's temporary. It, it, yes, it's permanent, but Parliament allowed, through the Tea Act, allowed the East India Company to acquire a tea monopoly. Monopoly folks, I'm not talking the board game right here where we got fake money and you know you roll your um roll the dice to see how far you move on the game table. No, a monopoly here where the company itself is going to have sole power in appointing people whom are going to get licensed to sell the tea directly to consumers. Well, some of you might think, well, why is that so bad? I'll tell you why it's bad. This Tea Act will also mean that, that the East India Tea Company is going to have the rights to eliminate the middlemen. Who are the middlemen, folks? The wholesalers, the retailers. They could be uh, merchants on the lower tier end of the um, spectrum in terms of um, where they stand in society based upon their wealth. So remember, folks, 85% of all tea in in America is smuggled Dutch tea and whom has been uh, powerful enough in colonial America going into 1773 with getting Dutch tea into the hands of people who, who would rather drink that versus the tea from the East India Company. The wholesalers, the retailers, the middlemen, folks, the middlemen are the ones that are providing so many people with uh, tea that they like, even though they know it's illegal. So this was all meant to curtail all other attempts behind smuggling tea into North America, most notably the Dutch tea, which had great potential to drive out large numbers of small colonial merchants and shopkeepers. So, yes, the Tea Act is not just about the tea itself. It's about eliminating everyone else whom had gotten their hands on smuggled Dutch tea and made profits that were, um, they did not have to pay duties, where they were avoiding having to pay duties that that impacted the uh, crown. So think about this, folks. Dutch smuggled Dutch tea, duty free East India Company. The tea requires duties on it, aka taxes. Okay, let's learn a little bit more about um, one of the families um, who are of uh, who are loyal to the crown. We've already mentioned about them a great deal, but they. Um, they have a very powerful role with this uh, tea. Remember the Hutchinsons, Governor Thomas Hutchinson? And if I'm not mistaken, didn't we uh, learn earlier uh, from the previous podcast that um, Thomas Hutchinson's sons um, were not only involved in just in the mercantile business alone, but they um, were uh, recipients of uh Of T being from East India yes the whole Hutchinson family was but the question before us here is this what do the Hutchinson and Clark families uh, have in common well I probably may have given part of it away but this part I haven't so let's be prepared for the answer well for starters both families are related to one another through marriage okay but the sons of both families the Hutchinson and the Clark families became official agents to the East India Company in Massachusetts which meant that these two families had complete control aka monopoly on the Massachusetts, on the tea trade in Massachusetts now one thing that i have not pointed out and it was something that i did learn i think i'm going to assume that it was from this book i i read but if not it was from somewhere else that there was a um it wasn't a neighborhood, but it was a street in Boston in, during colonial America that was known as Tory Row. And the reason why it was called Tory Row was because there were about nine or ten families, all loyal to the crown. These families married into one another. That's how they were able to retain not only their statuses in society, but they were also able to retain um, wealth. They were able to keep money in the hands of of the families to where um it would not fall you know into the wrong hands or be used for um it would not be used for the wrong reasons let's put it in a nutshell old money new money don't go well in hand so in other words if one of those families who lived on tory row married did not marry a, another family um did not marry a um a family Uh, another family on Tory Row, and the money fell out of, fell out of uh, line, Um, it would, it would, um, how do I say it, it would not be a good sign. Therefore, the money needs to stay where it belongs and, um, and not fall into someone that does not share loyalist views, but instead would rather share the views of a patriot. So, yes, uh, Richard, I mean, um, Thomas Hutchinson's sons and Richard Clark's sons are agents to the East India Company in Massachusetts, which means that yes, both of those families had complete um, had a complete monopoly on the Massachusetts tea trade. Okay, now, um, you know, it's interesting that the time after the Boston Massacre trials, which ended in October of 1770, the period between 1771 and 1772 really is a time where many in boston most notably the moderates they want order restored they want to go back to some form of normalcy they know that there are still that there's still going to be tensions with the crown but they want to have some form of normalcy john adams took a break from practicing law he even took a break from all the political um what do you call it all the uh, political um sensations you know, yes, John Adams did not like the Stamp Act. He didn't like the Townshend duties. He empathized with his cousin Samuel, but he only he can only empathize him, but uh, but for so far. Samuel was a complete radical. John, at this time, is a moderate. That's not to say that John does. It's not to say that John doesn't care about colon about the rights of the colonists, but he doesn't believe in destroying people's homes all because of uh, loyalties. He doesn't believe that people should be fighting left and right like there's no tomorrow. Remember folks, John Adams wasn't looking for 15 minutes of fame when he represented the, uh, the accused being the soldiers and Captain Thomas Preston. He was trying to teach the community a greater lesson about how when their emotions get out of control and both sides egg each other on to the point where Something so bad's going to happen that it's going to result in the loss of life, like what happened on March 5th, 1770, a massacre. Yes, it was bad enough that the soldiers fired into the crowd, but there's only so much abuse that the soldiers themselves are going to take. You can only take but so much heckling. You can only take but so much of snowballs and chunks of ice being thrown at you. The bottom line is is that, yes, for John Adams— the Boston Massacre trials, and their aftermath, in the aftermath of those trials, he needed a break from it all. So between 1771-1772 is a time of modified normalcy in Boston. But as for John Hancock, prior to 1773, after the Boston Massacre, what is John Hancock doing more of? He is spending more time engaged in works of philanthropy. And what do I mean by philanthropy? He is overseeing that um, buildings get um, restored if it meant buildings that belonged to uh, loyalist shopkeepers whose property was destroyed all in the name of um, acts of vandalism by those who did not like the fact that the customs officials, most notably like Ebenezer Richardson, were, um, were, um, is- were trying to... Um, go about um, seeing to it that the tea got sold and got unloaded or uh, let alone uh, collecting um, taxes on other items that needed to be taxed for revenue purposes that would go to the Customs Warehouse. So for John Hancock, yes, he is overseeing that a lot of um, buildings are getting uh, rebuilt. He is um, overseeing that uh, gardens get some kind of restoration, beautification. Hey, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with using your money where, it, where it's needed as long as it's benefiting the, the greater um, community for all the right reasons. Um, but in the aftermath of uh, Parliament's passing the Tea Act, John Hancock does go about restoring political ties with Samuel Adams. Even John Hancock himself needed a break from Samuel Adams. He knows Samuel's radical, but even Hancock, remember folks, is a moderate just like John Adams. However, John Hancock did not like the fact that Boston's middlemen, a.k.a. the wholesalers and the small merchants, had been deprived of their rights to freely sell the tea, that is, smuggled Dutch tea, at cheaper prices, even if he knew it wasn't right from the get-go in terms of smuggling it in illegally. In other words, John Hancock feels that Boston's middlemen have been deprived of some uh, fundamental essential rights. What do I think those rights could be? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness? That's just me, but hey, John Hancock knows that, That hey, even after a few years of peace, of modified peace, the flame still hasn't been fully extinguished just yet. What had the Boston Gazette published in September of 1773? Does anybody want to know exactly what could have been published in September 1773, I can tell you this much, it's breaking news. Of course, there was no breaking news app alert. Of course, we don't have the technology in 1773 like we do today to get instant breaking news alerts. But the newspaper itself posted a series of scathing articles. What's another term for scathing? Is scathing good or bad, folks? Bad. Scathing is another word for damaging or sensitive something that is just appalling, so the newspaper posted a series of scathing articles against the Tea act which stated East India Company's negative monopoly on driving out smaller-tier merchants to potentially destroying the free enterprise system in colonial America. Altogether, along with the notion or an idea where it would be okay for the government to create monopolies in general where monopolies themselves become a standard norm. It's bad enough that there's already one monopoly that has been given to the East India Company, even without the consent of the colonists, and the colonists have every right to believe that other monopolies could form over time, regardless of the commodity at stake. On October 21st of 1773, the Massachusetts Bay Committee of Correspondence wrote to other colonies urging them to prevent East India Company T from landing in America. Okay, so folks, I could say right now that this is a matter of national security. On November 3rd, 1773, men from Sam Adams, John Hancock to Dr. Joseph Warren. Remember Dr. Joseph Warren, folks? He was the man that tried to save... The 11-Year-Old Boy's Life, Christopher Sidere, who was shot by Ebenezer Richardson on uh, the night of February 22nd, 1770. Well, Dr. Warren is involved with Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and other patriot leaders. They all go about holding a rally at the Liberty Tree demanding that the sons of Richard Clark and Thomas Hutchinson, that their sons resign from their T-agent posts right away. I wonder if Thomas Hutchinson and um, Richard Clark are going to listen to these um, Sons of Liberty leaders and followers. Okay, folks, um, you know, when we first um, talked about this um, subject, especially in the introduction, we learned about some ships that were going to be coming into Boston's harbor. Well, we're going to talk about those ships. I'm sure many of you all were were eager to know when in fact those ships were going to be discussed. But uh let me ask you this though, folks. Those ships weren't by they weren't uh the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria coming into Boston Harbor. Am I right? Uh well the answer is no. Those ships were um affiliated three hundred years at least just shy of three hundred years earlier, when Christopher Columbus sailed over into what we now know as the West Indies. He you know, he was on one of those ships, the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. But no, it's not those ships that are coming over with tea. But how about this question? Uh, How many chests of tea were placed on vessels bound for America from England come late October 1773? I'll give you uh, a couple of uh, choices to choose from in terms of uh, how many chests of tea. Was it uh, 5,000 chests? Was it 1,700? Or was it 3,000 chests? The answer is choice B, folks. 1,700 chests of tea were placed on vessels bound for America by late October 1773. That means roughly 100 pounds of tea per each chest. That's a lot of tea, even right there, that needs to be sold. November eighteenth, 1773... The Sons of Liberty convene once again at the Liberty Tree, demanding once again that the T-agents, a.k.a. the Clark and Hutchinson sons, resign. Didn't have any luck the first go-around. I'm, I'm not sure why they may even think they'll have luck this the second go-around. But let's hold our uh, breath and see what happens. You know, um, I mentioned earlier that... Um, back on October 21st of 1773 that the Massachusetts Bay Committee of Correspondence had written to other colonies urging them to prevent East India Company tea from landing in America. Um, I think it'd be interesting to find out here if, in fact, they had success. Well, let me ask you this. Um, which other American port cities did the East India Company receive licenses to ship tea directly to? Well, let me ask you this, Um, how many, when I think of port cities, I think at this time I'm thinking of like Philadelphia, New York, Charleston, South Carolina, Um, there could be other port cities too, maybe even Savannah, Georgia, but I'll give you some numbers here. Um, How many port, American port cities did the East India Company receive licenses to ship the tea directly to? Was it six? Was it 12 or was it three? The answer is choice C, three. Besides Boston, there were three other cities. Anybody want to take a guess at what three three cities they might have been? Well, I'll give you a hint. One of them was in the south. Was it Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, or Wilmington, North Carolina? The answer is choice A, Charleston, South Carolina. So that's one of them. Um, the other two were from Middle Colonies. All right, so I'm going to give you four choices here. Choice A was it Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Was that one of them? Choice B, New York City? Was that a second one? Choice C was it um, Trenton, New Jersey? Or was it choice three or choice D being uh, both A and B. The answer is choice d both a and b being new york city and and, uh, philadelphia pennsylvania so the other three american port cities where east india company um, officials were given licenses to ship the tea directly to were philadelphia pennsylvania new york city and charleston south carolina and the recipients of the tea it would be fair to say that those who are receiving the tea are looked upon as favorites or i should say ardent supporters to the governor, uh, to the governor where they resided. So, if you live in South Carolina, I'm not sure who the royal governor is down there at this time, and I do apologize for not getting that piece of information um, obtained. But if you are loyal to the crown, then yes, the governor is going to see to it. The royal governor is going to see to it that you get your tea. Otherwise, if you don't, if you're not loyal to the governor or to the crown, then why should you? Why would you want to even have? Ex- be expressing um, interest in wanting the tea to begin with. Well, by late 1770, this question here, by late 1773, was John Hancock still considered as a moderate even after Parliament had enacted the Tea Act back in May? Yes, he was a moderate. I think that's a given because we already mentioned that earlier. But Hancock himself had performed an assortment of duties most notably philanthropy works that were geared towards restoring Boston's image after the March 1770 massacre, which we can all say is true. But once the Tea Act was passed, Hancock began a gradual severing of all ties to the crown. It wasn't a radical severing, a gradual severing. Of all ties to the crown, and it went into full effect. However, by the start of November, seventeen seventy-three, when he flat out refused to comply with Governor Hutchinson's orders, over commanding the governor's company of cadets. Basically, um, I think it's fair to say by late seventeen seventy-three, Hancock knows that he's got to once again say to himself, "Where do I? Where do I stand? I can always be a moderate, but for so long, and the longer I hold out." Then people whom are friends of mine on the Patriot side are going to totally turn against me altogether. So I've got to make up my mind here sooner versus later. November 27th, 1773. Listen carefully, folks. What happens on November 27th, 1773? The first of four ships set for Boston has arrived. That ship is the Dartmouth. The Dartmouth had laid, or I should say dropped anchor outside Boston Harbor, or what we know as Griffin's Wharf. Boston is known for its wharves, many wharves, where ships are coming in with goods to load. Well, they are coming to unload them, and then ships that are getting ready to have goods loaded on their uh, vessel for departure. The Dartmouth. Had 114 chests of British East India Company tea. 114, folks. Was the Dartmouth? Let's learn a little bit about the Dartmouth. You know, it's one thing that the Dartmouth has arrived, but let's find out a little bit more about the Dartmouth's history. Was the Dartmouth constructed and finished prior to the 1770 Boston Massacre? Yes. The vessel was totally completed in 1767, the same year that Parliament enacted the Townshend duties, or the Townshend Acts. So, the Dartmouth really isn't that old. By 1773, she's six years old. You might find this interesting real quick. You know, Thomas Jefferson always believed that if one was going to go overseas to Europe, and obviously he did, that a ship itself needed to be no more than three years old. The ship needed to have one good voyage to Europe and needed to also have a successful voyage back to America. Of course, we have to remember that the vessels that many of our forefathers traveled on going overseas to Europe and coming back to America, they were not uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line uh, vessels. They were primarily vessels that hauled cargo. I don't know how they did it, but they survived. But you have to remember, too, there's no drama mean either, too. But hey, that was Jefferson's thinking for the time that he lived in. Now, what was the Dartmouth's home port town? You all might be surprised to know this. The Dartmouth's home port had, was in uh, Nantucket Island by 1773. And Nantucket Island, by this time, is New England's whaling capital. And we'll find out a little bit more about that, because that is uh, interesting history right there. Now, the Dartmouth, we know, laid anchor at Boston's Harbor on, um, on November 27th, just outside of the harbor, but it's, it's not far away. But did the Dartmouth make it into Griffin's Wharf? Yes, the next day. November 28th, however, Samuel Adams and his band of mob followers were able to prevent the vessel from tying up. And what does it mean by tying up, folks? That's another um, term or phrase for um, how when, when a vessel ties up at the dock, it's their it's their version of unloading um, the goods that are on the vessel. Tying up basically is... You know, you've got to... um, Not so much unloading, but you have to... um, If you don't tie up, you know, how's the boat going to stay... How's the vessel going to stay in place? It's not. It's going to stray away. So, by tying up at the dock, at a dock spot, where eventually the eventual unloading of the cargo, a.k.a. the T, would occur. But Sam Adams and his band of mob followers have been able to prevent the vessel from tying up. Well, how are... How are Sam Adams and his mob followers going to maintain this um, success that they have? They instituted a measure where men from the mob crowds got assigned what we call guard duty. So, in other words, they're going to be all they're going to be around the clock monitoring this vessel to make sure that the Dartmouth, that the crew of the Dartmouth, do not unload their tea. John Hancock supports the measure. It's fair to say that even Sam Adams, you know, for being a um, rabble rouser and in the eyes of the British public enemy number one, it's fair to say that he's got his own um, security system in play. In other words, he's got um, mob crowds who yes or like sh- who could either be shopkeepers or mer- lower tier merchants but they have it in them to be um, armed guards in other words they're not one might say that they're protecting their own interests but they're protecting people from the mainland who don't have to be exposed to this cargo not so much because of the cargo itself but because of what they're having to be forced to pay on tax on the tea Were other New England port cities keen on prohibiting British vessels, a.k.a. T-ships, from unloading their cargoes? Yes. Most notably in New Hampshire and New York. I found it interesting that there were multiple um, port cities in New Hampshire that went above and beyond to uh, prohibit British vessels from unloading their cargoes, most notably Portsmouth, Newcastle, Exeter, and Dover, they all refused to help offload British T-ships, whereas in New York, Patriot forces prevailed in forcing the resignations of East India Company agents. That is a first right there. You know, they're trying so hard in Boston to get those uh, Hutchinson and Clark sons to resign. But in New York, New York did a first. And that they, I think it's fair to say that, uh, that New York may have been the first of the colonies that actually had um, a successful outcome in forcing the East India Company agents to resign. Now, didn't we say early on from the introduction that there were three ships that made it into Boston's harbor? Yes, the first one we know is the Dartmouth. What are the other two ships, folks? The names of the other two ships, the Eleanor and the Beaver. Think of it, if you want to remember their names long-term, think of Deb. You know, Deb is short for Debbie. Deb, Dartmouth, Eleanor, Beaver. So the Eleanor and the Beaver vessels, they too are transporting East India tea. They arrived into Boston's harbor, a.k.a. Griffin's Wharf, not long after the Dartmouth had done so on November 28th. Those two ships arrived uh, after the beginning of December, there was a fourth ship that was supposed to come, folks, and that ship never arrived to Boston. It ran aground in Cape Cod. In other words, it uh, it hit a shoal. It bottomed out. However, despite that ship running aground in Cape Cod, the ship, um, it was still salvageable. That is, its cargo wasn't destroyed. In other words, the T managed to survive, there were 58 chests of tea on that fourth ship, and a, a member of the Clark family coordinated the tea rescue mission, where the tea got sent to Castle William, where uh, members of the Hutchinson family and the Clark family were living to avoid, um, to avoid being captured by um, the mob crowds. This was the only instance, folks, where chests of tea did not fall into Patriot hands. Fifty-eight chests of tea. Not the largest number, but hey, uh, I can't say that even loyalists had uh, ingenuity on their sides. Regardless of where one's loyalties are, it's fair to say that both sides had ingenuity, even if it meant upsetting the opposite side. Had the Eleanor, Beaver, and Dartmouth all arrived into Boston under the most pressing of legal circumstances... So in other words, do you think they came in on peaceful terms or or unpleasant terms? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Don't you think they came into um into Boston Harbor on unpleasant terms? Yes. Well, I mean for one, it's fair to say that these that the captains and their crew know that the colonists, especially those in Boston, the majority of of Bostonians are outraged over the fact that Parliament has retained a tax on a commodity that most Bostonians don't like drinking, and they know that only about nine families uh, who are loyal to the Crown like drinking tea. So, yes, the Eleanor, Beaver, and the Dartmouth all arrived into Boston under the most uh, pressing of legal circumstances. For starters, their entry into Griffin's Wharf wasn't peaceful, but each vessel itself was subject to government seizure, being that the ships themselves, including their cargos. Okay, folks, so it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm pulling into a, like the equivalent of a parking spot, like, you know, driving a car. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, turn everything off, you know, put it in park and, and then, you know, make sure I have everything ready to go so that when I get off, you know, I, I'm going to just check in and everything's just going to be smooth. No, that's not how their arrival worked. On the other hand, I'll just tell you all right now, they, the crew wasn't uh, heckled, but I know that the crew was worried about, the crews of these ships were worried about their safety. So, yes, we already know that their arrival was not peaceful, but that, and that each vessel itself was subject to government se- seizure, being the ships themselves, including their cargos. However, let's listen to this, folks. All three ships are under a 20-day grace period. In other words, they have 20 days to unload all their cargoes and pay the necessary duties, a.k.a. taxes, within this time frame. So, if the Dartmouth arrived on the 27th of November, how many days does the Dartmouth have after the 27th? We know she has 20 days, but after November 27th, how many days... What is her deadline? Should I tell you all now? But just think about it 20 days. We'll get to it here momentarily, but just remember that's just shy of three weeks to get all of this taken care of. According to uh, the rule of law in 1773, once a ship or a group of ships, in this case being three, entered into the harbor, they could not return to sea without having unloaded all existing cargoes upon that are that were on their vessels aka ships so remember they can't just say, "Oh well, you know because we could not unload all of our cargoes we 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 have no other choice but to go back to England, or would it be okay if we could have our um have our uh, cargo get rerouted um to the next uh available port city that would uh, welcome us and accept our goods. In other words, you know, how do I sum it up here? I, I work in the shipping industry, and w- whenever you hear the term reconsignment, that means that you are uh, rerouting a shipment from its original um, place of delivery destination to a new place. So we don't have such a thing as reconsignments back then, folks. Remember, again, once a ship or, a group of ships has entered into the harbor, they cannot return to sea without having unloaded all existing cargoes um, still on their vessels. And the Sons of Liberty members, or I should say, members of the Sons of Liberty are on constant patrol. Remember, you know, Samuel Adams is overseeing this, John Hancock supports it, where crew are um, constantly watching all three ships. They are not just watching them, they are preventing the ships and their crew, or they're preventing the crews of each ship from unloading their cargoes. What other commodity did two of the three ships being the Dartmouth and the Beaver transport into Boston's harbor besides tea? Anybody want to take a guess? You know, didn't I mention earlier about how Nantucket Island was New England's whaling capital? How about the answer of whale oil? Why is whale oil so um, essential? Well, does anybody know exactly what kind of whales are being hunted? Were they gray whales? Were they um, beluga whales or sperm whales? The answer is choice C sperm whales. These whales were hunted down for their spermaceti. I don't want to, I'm not going to try to gross you all out here, don't. But, but spermachete is head matter. This, this substance was the most prized, or I should say valued, oil of a sperm whale. How so? Because the spermachete was known to burn brighter and, co- and cleaner, and it was used primarily for candle production. Whale oil was also used, folks, for lighting lamps in the 18th and 19th centuries. And to have whale oil was a big deal. Well, is it fair to say that Nantucket whale ship owners got better oil prices in London versus America? Sure. And is it fair to say that there are more consumers in London who would benefit from whale oil? Yes. Think about it. The only people who could really benefit from uh, whale oil in America are those not only in the mercantile Uh, Industry, But those who are on the uh, upper end of the uh, economic spectrum, most middling families probably would never be able to have uh, whale oil in their lifetime in their homes. All they would get is just a basic candle that they could light as means of electricity. So, yes, Nantucket whaleship owners are getting better oil prices in London versus America. Nantucket's people are staunch loyalists, which helps even more. Nantucket's whalers hunted sperm whales off the Cape Cod coast, um, and as far south as the coast of South America, as well as as far south as the Falkland Islands, where Argentina, w- which are located uh, right off of uh, Argentina, and it was very common for whalers themselves to do business off the South Atlantic Ocean. Um, a good book, uh, real quick, not to get off track, but a good book to read, and I read this before. Uh, some years back, it was written by Nathaniel Philbrick. Uh, he's written many good books, but it's called The trage- um, It's called the Essex, uh, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship of uh, the Essex. That has to do with uh, Nantucket's um, history uh, with uh, whaling, but it's uh, very well worth uh, reading. I'll tell you that much there. Um, I don't expect many of you all would know this person. I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but he is a, uh, an important um, figure, who is Francis Roach, or Francis Roach, R-O-T-C-H? He is a Massachusetts whaling merchant man who is a native of Nantucket. His family dominated every element within the whaling industry. And if that's not enough in terms of um, successful accomplishments, uh, Francis Roach was owner of the Dartmouth the first ship that arrived into boston's harbor in late november 1773 well december now we're going to move to december 17th 1773 didn't i mention earlier about how when the dartmouth arrived on november 27th 1773 didn't how many days did all three ships have to unload their cargoes Twenty days now, and remember, all three ships didn't arrive. The Dartmouth was the first, so December seventeenth, folks. That's the final deadline date for the Dartmouth to make payment upon tea duties, A.K.A. taxes. Now, December six, December sixteenth, however, the day before the deadline, Francis Roach, owner of the Dartmouth, is desperately trying to um, reach a deal with Governor Thomas Hutchinson. In other words, Francis Roach doesn't like being stuck in the middle. He's trying to plead with Governor Hutchinson to say, "Hey, look, look, you know you should have taken what the East India Company tea officials had said early on: Eliminate the tea tax. You know, the longer this tea tax um, stays around, the more you're going to infuriate the colonists, especially the people in Boston who are totally against this. The harder it's going to be for us." That is not just for the crew on my ship, that that I'm owner of, but for the crews of the Beaver and the Dartmouth, or the Beaver and the Eleanor, just to do their jobs. So just eliminate the t tax. Nope, Governor Hutchinson did not uh, was not willing to bend. And so therefore, um, basically his decision was that. The people of Boston had no legal authority, period, to request that vessels return without unloading the cargo, a.k.a. the T. You either unload the T or you just meet um, consequences that, um, I don't know, maybe meaning resulting in death. I I don't know. The bottom line is Governor Hutchinson uh, is really shooting himself in the foot. Governor Hutchinson's unwillingness to bend led to the all-out inevitable where scores of men dressed in Indian attire. Remember early on I mentioned um, from the introduction and from a previous podcast about how some of the mob followers were known to dress in Indian attire? And there is an um, Indian nation uh, west of Massachusetts in New York State, the Iroquois Nation, and one of the tribes that made up the Iroquois Nation were known as the Mohawks. So yes, many of these um, mob followers in in Boston were known to wear Indian attire that resembled that of the Mohawk Nation. So scores of men dressed in Indian attire with war paint colors on their faces take matters upon themselves by voicing loud chants or cries of the following, Boston Harbor, a teapot tonight. Hurrah for Griffin's Wharf. And the Mohawks are come. Okay, this is serious. However, what uh, forefather of ours advises Samuel Adams and his mob followers to, to go about pursuing their cause appropriately without extremism? Mr. John Hancock. He advises Samuel Adams and the mob followers to focus solely on the tea by dismantling every tea chest with contents into Boston's Boston Harbor's waters. Okay, so what does that mean by avoiding acts of extremism? That means don't set the, the vessels on fire. Don't destroy the other cargo that's not tea-related. So all customs officers and ships crewmen of these three vessels, folks, were safely escorted away. To avoid the risk of injury and perhaps death. How many tea chests, folks, per all three ships, got dumped into Boston's harbor? Was it five hundred? Was it a thousand? Or was it choice C, three hundred forty-two? The answer is choice C, folks, three hundred forty-two. That's the number of tea chests altogether that were dumped into Boston's harbor per the three ships. This was valued around 9,659 pounds, or in American dollars, a million dollars. A million dollars in American money. That's a lot right there. No other cargo got destroyed. And was there whale oil on these ships, folks? Yes, there was. The whale oil wasn't destroyed. No fights, no acts of brutality... The entire the entire dismantling of all tea chests took no more than three hours. How many watched all this happen, folks? Was it five thousand people that watched this? Was it twenty five hundred or a thousand spectators? A thousand, folks. A thousand spectators watched nearby silently as all of this had unraveled within a three hour span. Within a three-hour span, folks, 342 tea chests were dumped into Boston's harbor. And you, all of you, would find this interesting to know. But um, in Boston, Massachusetts, at the Boston uh, Tea Party uh, Museum, there is on display an actual tea chest that has been preserved intact since since um, December of 1773 it somehow survived being thrown into Boston's harbor. Now, isn't that unique or what? So you could still see an actual tea chest from, uh, from uh, about, let's see, nearly 250 years that's still intact. You know, this was a... Um, I could say this may have been a constructive victory in the sense that it didn't resort to other acts of extremism like what happened three years ago in, that led to the Boston Massacre incident. But at the same time, even though there were no injuries or deaths, a.k.a. acts of brutality, there were 342 T-chests that were dismantled and about 9,659 pounds of revenue lost, or what we know now is a million dollars in American money, both sides uh, would suffer greatly for the dumping of tea. And what do you, and how do you think they might suffer? Well, there's a variety of reasons. There could be uh, future legislation down the road that um, that will uh, lead to negative impacts behind as a result of having the tea being dumped into the waters. And I think it is fair to say also, too, that in a few years from now, blood will be shed in the form of war. So, yes, you may have um, done something noble tonight, but come tomorrow, your actions will come back and get you, especially if you are on the side of the crown. I can't wait to find out how the crown's going to react to this. I'm not saying this from a loyalist perspective. I, I just have to think to myself, hey, if I'm on the side of the crown or or if I was a neutral or if I, if I was showing signs of neutrality, how is the crown going to respond to this? What could the crown possibly do next to punish the people of Boston that they have not already done now? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I'm on the air next, we are going to actually learn about uh, the new... Um, pieces of legislation that Parliament passes that were, that are going to be geared towards um, the consequences that um, unraveled from December 16th, 1773. I found it pretty amazing to think that, um, you know, it's one thing to have dumped all these uh, chests of tea into the water, but the fact that nobody lost their life, to me, I think that's a miracle unto itself. If Samuel Adams had not taken John Hancock's advice, yeah, I think there would have been um, some loss of life. Thank heaven Samuel Adams is using some common sense here now, but I don't know how far that common sense will last because um, the legislation that Parliament will be enacting here soon will um, will make uh, things even worse for the colonies, not just for the people of Boston, but for everyone else in uh, colonial America. Well, thank you for your time as always. And uh, thank you for listening. You all are great listeners. Continue to get that word out. And I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. Take care for now and stay safe.